Good morning, church. Is this working? Can you hear me? There we go. Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 19. We'll be reading John chapter 19, verses 1 through verse 16. John 19, verses 1 through 16. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. And if you would come with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 20. The crucifixion is told in all four Gospels and told in great detail. I would like this morning to walk through the stories that were leading up to the cross. In fact, today we'll leave the story off. When we finish, we'll leave it off at the point where Christ is actually going to the cross. I'd like to see this morning the road to the cross, and we'll start in Matthew chapter 20. I'll do my best this morning to not have you jumping around in passages and it's worth taking a look at several different authors who all spoke about the same thing. And so we will be in all four of the Gospels at some point as we walk through. I want you to let this thought sink in this morning. The cross was not a mistake. It was not plan B that God just backed up and said retroactively for some way, oh, oops, things didn't go the way we expected and they killed him. 
That's not what happened. God planned this from the foundation of the world. In fact, the Scriptures speak of it very clearly. God Himself spoke of it in Isaiah 53, some 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He that he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then verse 11 continues on. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Do you hear those words? The Father will see the travail of the Son. And he will be satisfied. The wrath of God satisfied at the cross. This was planned from before the foundation of the world. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant just by many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And the Son was in 100% agreement. The Lord Jesus was in 100% agreement with this plan, for this is the only way that man would ever be made right with God. John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus himself made these words. He said, no man takes it from me, speaking of his own life. No man takes it from me. You won't take my life. I'll lay it down and I'll take it back up again. And by the way, you and I receive this wonderful salvation because of His plan that happened before the foundation of the world. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2. In hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God promised this before He ever said let there be light. He had this in plan and in motion Adam falls in sin, and God's standing there ready immediately. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He did not have to back up and come up with another plan for how's this going to work. Oh, he had a plan. He will crush the head of the serpent. And we, by his stripes, we will be made healed. Son. This was the plan. The Son, the second member of the Trinity, The Lord Jesus Christ, who ever was and ever will be, who was in eternity past before the words, let there be light, were ever spoken, He was. And He is, and He ever will be. He was not all of a sudden brought into existence as a babe in a manger. Oh no, the second person of the Trinity always has been. He fulfills the very word, I am. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us, For by Him were all things created. Friend, the Lord Jesus Christ always has been, and it has been His plan to go to the cross. So when we see a story, and like the disciples might look at the story of the Gospels, and think, how is it that Jesus ended up on the cross. Surely this is a mistake, for the disciples did not expect it, even though Jesus foretold it. He chose that road to the cross. The Lord Jesus became a man. You realize without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's what the book of Leviticus says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I want you to think for just a moment... The Lord Jesus had to become flesh. He had to become a man, for God cannot die. In order for our sins to be taken away, God became man so that He could taste death for you and I. God took on the robes of flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ 
became a man, 100% man and yet 100% God. You say, I can't wrap my mind around it, neither can I. And the Lord Jesus tasted of death, became obedient to the death of the cross so that you and I could receive His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And I hear the words of the song like the power of the cross. Every sinful thought that you and I have ever had, every evil deed was laid upon Him. The iniquity of us all was laid upon Him. And I hope as a result of our walk through this road to the cross this morning, that you'll see that at every step, He chose the cross. It was the plan from the foundation of the world, and He chose it. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse number 17 with me. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Do you hear the words there at the beginning of verse 18? Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. This is just mere days before the crucifixion. And he says to the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and this is what will happen. They will crucify me. But I won't stay in the grave. I will rise again after three days. These poor guys, when it comes time for it, they've forgotten these words. But the Lord Jesus Christ headed to Jerusalem on purpose. You see, at this time, we won't take the time to look at it, but John chapter 12 says that at this time, the chief priests and the Pharisees were angry over the fact that the Lord Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Such a wonderful miracle. They had all publicly seen that Lazarus had died. Many of them had wept at his funeral. They had seen Lazarus put into the grave, and yet they had also seen four days later Jesus came along and raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was exhibit A that the Lord Jesus Christ is God Almighty in the flesh. And here they hated this. And the Scripture says in John chapter 12, not only did they want to kill Jesus, they were trying to figure out how they could kill Lazarus because if they could put him back in the grave, exhibit A is gone. Peter did his best to try to persuade the Lord Jesus not to go. You might remember, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going to go together, and I will be crucified there. And Peter stepped in and said, Lord, not so. It won't happen. I will defend you. You won't do it. And you remember the words of Jesus? Get thee behind me, Satan. And I don't think that in that moment that God is putting down Satan, putting down Peter and calling Peter Satan in some sort of way that he can just speak down at Peter. Though instead, this is the way that Satan would love for things to go. Let Jesus come and set up a kingdom. Satan would love. He knows that the Lord Jesus is going to go to the cross and he will crush the head of the serpent. He knows it. He's been paying attention since Genesis 3. And he would love for anything, if any, any way possible, for Peter and the rest of the disciples to take up arms. Maybe even Jesus could call down 72,000 angels to push back against the Roman soldiers. Oh, Satan would love that. And the Lord Jesus Christ called it out. Oh no, he chose this road. He chose the cross. And in every step, He chose it. And I would like to show us this morning, we'll walk through quickly each one of these steps. I'd like for us to see four different steps along the road to the cross. And how that at each one, the Lord Jesus chose this road. 
He could have turned around at any point. You and I would have been left helpless. He is God of gods. He is able to slip away from any of those you might remember in his early ministry. Those men in Cana of Galilee, angry at his words, carried him to the cliff and were going to throw him off of the cliff. And he slipped through them as if somehow he put pause on time. And all of them were left standing there and he slipped out from amongst them. He could do it again on the road to the cross. And yet he chose it. Come with me to Luke chapter 19. We'll see the first step on the road to the cross. This is the triumphal entry. You might know the story. This had been prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9. I'll read the prophecy. You have it on the board. Zechariah wrote like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This triumphal entry that happens and is recorded in Luke chapter 19 was something that had been prophesied well before, and these people knew it. They knew their Old Testament. They loved their Old Testament. And here Jesus comes. He's coming riding on a donkey, and you might remember the story that happened there in order for that donkey to be brought so that Jesus could ride upon it. This was the foal, a colt, a baby donkey. God had commanded the kings of Israel that when they were to ride in procession, they were not to use a strong thoroughbred of a horse, but instead the king was to ride a donkey. And and, and we are not familiar with donkeys in our society, but I'll just say it like this. Donkeys are awkward animals. In fact, a donkey is not a very large animal. When you compare a donkey against a horse, a horse you ride above the people. The donkey you drag your feet along the ground. Imagine a baby donkey. Never having been ridden before, and Jesus rides upon this donkey in the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9's prophecy, and the people recognize it. It's a miracle that he rides this donkey, much less that he rides it into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. Historians say that on that day could have been as many as 250,000 people approaching the city from that side, and all of them crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they cannot get over the fact that here is fulfillment of prophecy they've been waiting for for thousands of years. This is Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they're excited about it. Read with me in Luke chapter 19, verse 37. When he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. They're putting their finger right at him. This one's the King. They're excited about it. Hosanna, throw the palm leaves on the ground. Take their own coats off. Lay them on the ground lest this donkey walk through the mud. And here's the opportunity for them to raise their voices and point their fingers at the King of Kings. And they're getting it right. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying... Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And there are two responses that follow after these praises. One is the response of the Pharisees that I see in verse number 39. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. These are those nose-pulling, hobnob Pharisees that are afraid that Jesus is going to overturn the cart of their religious system. 
They love the way that things are going with their religious system. In fact, this is the Passover. This is the time when they make all their money for the year. They're going to be selling lambs in the temple. They're going to be making a whole lot of money on it. I love the fact that before the day is over, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it. He is the Passover lamb come to take away the sin of the world. And these Pharisees standing on the side tell Jesus, you better tell your disciples to hush up right now because if it gets too loud, the Romans are going to squelch this. Jesus makes a statement in verse 40. He answered and said unto them, I tell you, if these should hold the peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Oh, the stones know who he is. All of creation waits. Romans chapter 8 says all of creation waits and groaning for the redemption of this world. And that redemption happens at the moment that Jesus Christ goes to the cross. Oh, the stones know who he is. Jesus has a response as he also enters in. We saw the response of the Pharisees. And then there's the response of the Lord Jesus in verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. And notice these words. Wept over it. You realize why he's weeping? I think of this, any earthly king on his way in through the majestic gates going into the city with the accolades of all the people who are with him, any earthly king would have soaked that up and said, yes, this is my moment. But the Lord Jesus wept over them for he knew they were looking for an earthly king. He knew that they were expecting that perhaps he would overthrow the Romans and he had something oh so much greater in plan. He's not overthrowing the Romans. He's overthrowing Satan. And he continued his way in, wept over the city. They have no idea what is to come. The verses, and we won't read it, the verses that are to come in their lifetime, that very city will be overthrown. He knows it. For it is not about that kingdom in that moment. It's about his eternal kingdom. Every step... He chose the cross. Our second step would be at the upper room. So come with me over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I see the second step. This is at the upper room. John chapter 13. We'll read verse 1. Several days have passed from the triumphal entry. Now they're in the upper room. This is the night of the Passover. Night before the Passover. Tomorrow he will go to the cross. He's partaking the Passover. The Galileans would take the Passover the, night, the day before the Judeans. Here he is in Jerusalem with his disciples in the upper room. This Last Supper takes up in the book of John, takes up five chapters, the greatest portion of any one event in the book of John. I want you to see some important things that were happening in chapter 13. Look at verse number 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, listen to these words. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Did you see those words? He knew, and yet he chose. He did not have to go to Jerusalem. He could have slipped away. He could have made his way into Jerusalem, slipped out of their hands. And there he is, the night before the crucifixion. He gathers the disciples. He loves them to the end. He prays for them. And in praying for them, he prays for us as well. He loved them to the end. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God and went to God. There's no doubt in His mind. Think back to the words that were in the book of Matthew as He asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I am? Some said, Oh, you must be Elijah, or you must be John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. Peter spoke up. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, You're right, Peter. God in the flesh. Come for the very reason of taking the sin of the world upon His shoulders. He will become sin for us that we might be made righteousness of God in Him. Then He takes up a towel and He begins to wash their feet. In verses 4 and 5, He washed their feet. Verse 4, He riseth from supper and laid aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And he makes his way around the room from one disciple to the next, showing them what true leadership is. He comes to Peter, and you might remember Peter's words. Peter's, no, Lord, you're too mighty and you're too high, too exalted. Please, Lord, don't wash my feet. I think that that is a very appropriate response. But then the Lord Jesus made a statement, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. So then Peter goes to the opposite extreme. I see the cross in this. For when I see the Lord Jesus as high and as holy as He is, I do not deserve the cross. Lord, my sin is an affront against You. I don't deserve to have your mercy. And he says, if I don't wash you, you're not mine. So then you swing that pendulum to the other side. Don't just wash my feet, Father. Wash all of me. My hands, my head, wash all of me. And I'm so thankful for the words that Jesus said to Peter. Once you've been washed, every once in a while, you guys got to be reminded to wash your feet off. I'm so thankful that he died on the cross once for all. And every once in a while, we just have to keep coming back. He doesn't have to die again. He doesn't have to go to the cross again. Just come back. You say you have no sin. You've deceived yourself. And the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So thankful that he washed their feet that night. And then he gave thanks, and this is not in John 13, it's over in the book of Luke, and I share the verse with you, this is Luke chapter 22 and verse 17, it says, he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among yourselves, and he said it again in Luke 22 and verse 19 regarding the cup, he took the bread, sorry, 19 is the bread, he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Why did he give thanks? What did he give thanks for? You and I, when we sit to eat, we have custom as Christians to give thanks. We have a a custom amongst ourselves. And many times we give thanks when we see food in front of us. We give thanks for the provision. And I doubt, very highly doubt, that the Lord Jesus sat with the cup and with the bread and thanked the Lord for the provision that would fill their hungry tummies. I don't, think what that, I don't think that that's what that thanks is. The Scripture doesn't say, but I can't help but wonder, the Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, 
that my body, which is going to be broken for them, will be sufficient to take away their sin. This is my body. It will be broken. Thank you for mercy. And then he sent Judas away from the room. I see that in John chapter 13 again in verse number 27. There's a bit of a discussion that leads up to this. The Lord Jesus said to the disciples, one of you will betray me this night. None of the disciples could figure out who it was. Oh, how easy it is to just blend in and fake it. The disciples looked at one and leaned upon the Lord Jesus' breast and said, who is it? Peter said, is it I? Is it possible that I would turn my back on you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus said, it has to do with the one with whom I put the sop in the cup. And you can see that in verse 26. Read verse 26 with me. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop. I'm going to take this piece of bread and I'm going to dip it together with him when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. The son of Simon. I wonder what it was like in Simon's life as he and his wife realized that they were going to have a little boy. He who had been formed by the heavenly father in the womb of his mother. Judas, the son of Simon of Iscariot. And Judas grew up as a little boy. Judas joined the band of disciples that followed Jesus If Simon was still alive, I can't help but think, oh, poor Simon probably thought, my son's going to go do great things with Jesus. But then as so many do, the love of money crept into the heart of Simon. 1 Timothy 6 says the love of money will pierce the soul through and some will even walk away from the faith. And Judas walked away from the faith. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And as is seen, and we won't look at, but as is seen later, I don't think Judas realized how far-reaching his actions would be. For before the night is over, he will throw that money away and beg that the situation be turned back around. The Lord Jesus sent Judas away. Look at verse number 30. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. The Lord Jesus knew it, and he chose this road. If ever there's a moment that seems like a no turning back, it's this moment. In John's words, it was night. On the surface, seems so little. But when you meditate upon this moment, as he leaves from the upper room, it's dark. Literally and metaphorically. And it's about to get very dark. The book of Mark shares this little tidbit, and I want to get a glimmer of hope in the midst of this. Here's Mark chapter 14 and verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. 
For while it was still dark, metaphorically and literally, and surrounding them in darkness, the Lord Jesus with the disciples sung a hymn. And I can't help but think of that hymn as the Lord Jesus sung a hymn with His disciples, knowing where it is that He would go. The book of John records here in the next few chapters, 18 records that they will cross the brook Kidron. The book Kidron uh, is the very brook that the blood of the lambs had been flowing in that day and would flow in again the following day as people brought their Passover lambs to be slaughtered. He sees it, and he sings with his disciples. It's well known what it is that the Jewish people sing at the end of the Passover. That's The song that they sing is known as the Hallel. And i got to share with you, it's worth going and looking up. It's spelled H-A-L-L-E-L. You've got to watch it on YouTube sometime. Just go watch it. As Jewish people sing the Hallel, it comes from Psalm 113 to 118, and Jewish men memorize these chapters. I won't read them all to you, but I'd love for you to hear some of the words that are quoted as they sing these six psalms. Here's some verses from Psalm 113 that you might be familiar with. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. That comes from the Hallel. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? Who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Do you hear foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus who created and then humbled Himself to come back and look upon it? Oh, may His name be praised from the rising to the setting of the sun. And then into Psalm 116, here as the Lord Jesus sings the songs that have been sung by the Jewish people for some thousand years by that point, and by the way, continue to be sung until this day. Here's Psalm 116 and verse 3. The sorrows of death come past me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Do you hear Jesus singing those words with His disciples knowing what it is that's about to happen within the next 12 hours. He knows it, and yet He chose it. Psalm 117, Oh, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people, for His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. You see, the Lord Jesus did not just walk into and set up His kingdom on that day so that He could have get rid of Rome and have a Jewish kingdom. Instead, He went to the cross so that He could defeat sin and hell and Satan and He could get rid of the grave. He could take care of all of it. He could have a kingdom for all the nations, as He says in Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise Him, all you nations. And then in Psalm 118, the words come in verse 17. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but He hath not given me over unto death. Oh, He would taste death, but He would not stay there. 
And then in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art my, become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. If ever there was a wonderful song for the disciples to sing that night, it was that song. And the Lord Jesus sang it, knowing that He was the fulfillment of it. I say it again, every step of the way, He chose this road. Come with me to Mark chapter 14 now. Mark chapter 14, I see the third step along the road. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. At this step along the road, I might just add that it almost seems to me sacrilegious to look in upon the secret suffering of the Lord Jesus as He was in the garden. And yet the Holy Spirit recorded it within the Scriptures for us to see. May we look upon it with holiness. I believe you could see it. The prophecy was in Isaiah chapter 50 and verses 6 and 7. Said like this, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and know that I shall not be ashamed. Do you hear the words prophetically? Well, set my face like a flint. The Lord Jesus saw what was coming at the end of the road and He chose every single step. I will set my face like a flint. A very straight, sharp piece of stone that will not be moved. I will set my face like a flint. And the Lord Jesus chose it. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, He chose obedience. You might remember that our Tambuna Adam in the garden chose disobedience and in so doing he brought death upon all men. And yet the Lord Jesus in the garden chose obedience and in so doing he made available life for all men. I'm so thankful that he chose obedience in the garden. You're in Mark chapter 14 now. Let's look at verse number 32. They came to a place which was called, which was named Gethsemane. He saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Our Lord does not use hyperbole, He does not say things that He does not mean. He does not grasp for great big ideas and bring them down and say things like, oh, I'm dying. He doesn't say that lightly. So when he says, my soul is at the point of death, this is an angst that cannot be described. He's brought his disciples to the garden. Guys, you stay there. Peter, James, and John, come with me. You pray. Peter, James, and John, come with him to a distance, and then he steps away from them, falls to his knees, and begins to pray. 
Look at verse 36 at some of the words of his prayer. And he said, Abba, Father. We've spoken before of the idea of Abba. I'm throwing my hand up to you, Father. I need your help right now, Dad. Abba, Father. All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And as I think upon that cup, what is in that cup that he would look upon and he would shirk away from, what would he shudder as he gasps, shudder and gasp as he looks down into the cup? What would cause him to question the Father's will in this moment? I think of the things that would be within that cup has everything to do with our sin. I think inside that cup, he probably saw the repulsion of sin itself. How absolutely... Do you hear the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 21? He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He never had a sinful thought. Never once did he ever say even just the slightest little lie. He who knew no sin became sin for us as he looked into the cup and realized this is what I will face in these coming hours. The repulsion, the very repulsion, the very thing that would cause separation between God and man. He sees it and he sees it in all of its vigor. He never knew a sin. Oh, the devastation that comes with sin. I'm sure he looked upon it. That which causes man's mind to be skewed. For you and I cannot even think purely because of the way that we have been impacted by sin within our lives. The way that men and women and children, lives have been destroyed and affected because of sin within humanity. And he's going to take that sin upon himself And with it comes the wrath of God. The penalty of sin. The wrath of God that abides, as we've seen so many times in the book of Romans, the sin that abides, the wrath of God that abides upon sin. And he sees this penalty for sin and he will take it. It will take the shape of a crown of thorns upon his head. It will take the shape of lashes upon his back and vile spitting from the mouths of Roman soldiers whose faces have been disfigured from battles. They will spit upon his face. They'll rip his beard with their hands. The penalty of sin as the Lamb of God is going to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of mankind. An infinite God will unleash his infinite wrath upon his Son in the space of a few hours. And he sees that. And I can't help but wonder as well, if it's not revealed to him also the powers of darkness that are there. Satan has manifested himself by entering into Judas. But I can only imagine as all the minions of hell are doing their best in this moment. If you can't stop him from going to the cross, at least keep him in the grave. As the thousands, if not millions, of demons... And the powers of darkness would be unleashed in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Get him to walk back away from the cup. And if you can't get him to walk away from the cup, hold him in the grave. Oh, the repulsion that was in that cup as the Lord Jesus looked into the cup. And Father, if it's possible, and he knew there is no other way. 
God in His infinite wisdom knew that the only way for Him to be both just and justifier was for Himself to take upon Himself the deeds of man, the sin of man, and the wrath of Himself. God set forth Jesus, Romans 3.24, God set forth Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin, the gift that would turn away wrath. God set forth Jesus. Three times the Lord Jesus walked back to those disciples and asked them, hey, please, could you just stay awake just an hour? Oh, how frail you and I are as human beings. And then in verse 42, he comes to them one last time. Rise up. Gentlemen, the hour has come. Rise up. Let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. Rise up, the Lord Jesus would say to them. It's time for me to take on Satan and take on sin and take on hell and take on the grave. I will defeat them. I will rise victorious. Rise up. It's time to go. And in the moments that followed, so many bizarre things happened. I won't dive into them, but things that happened were like Judas walking in and kissing Jesus in an act of betrayal. This is bizarre. These men came and asked, we're coming to seek after Jesus. And when Jesus made the phrase, when he said the phrase, I am he, they fell back. His very words on display and power, the power of the word of God, as he knocked them back on their feet and they stepped up again and he gave himself over. Another bizarre moment is Peter pulled out a sword, whacked off Malchus's ear, chaos in the garden in that moment. Just think, if things had played out that way, oh, the disciples would have been overrun. Jesus probably would have given himself over still, and yet the disciples, three years of ministry, is it even possible that those men would carry the gospel in the years that would follow? And the Lord Jesus, the last miracle of his earthly ministry reached down and he grabbed Malchus's ear and put it back on Malchus's head and calmed everything. He didn't come to speed up our doom. He came to take it. Let's go to the fourth step now along the road. The book of John chapter 18. John chapter 18 in verse number 19. This is the unjust trials. There were a number of unjust trials that happened that night. The very first of them was before Annas. And we won't look at all of them, but I do want, to see, want you to see how unjust these trials were. John chapter 18 and verse number 19. This is speaking of Annas. Annas has no right to be the high priest anymore. In fact, if you understand the way that the Levitical priesthood was set up, Annas is now passed on the high priest position to his son-in-law. That's not correct. It's passed down to your son, not the in-laws. He's passed down to his son-in-law, and yet he still fulfills the roles. To pass down is even incorrect because the priesthood of the high priest only gets passed upon the death of the high priest. And so for him to even call himself a high priest anymore is just a sham. And yet it's become a political system by this point. Look at verse number 19. High priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. 
Hey, I want to know, what is it that you've been teaching, he asks Jesus. And Jesus' answer is absolutely amazing. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I even taught in the synagogue and in this temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What have I said unto them? Behold, they know what I said. The question was, what is it that you've been teaching? And Jesus said, if you want to know what it is that I've been teaching, don't ask me, ask the people that have been listening to me. Because I haven't been doing this in secret. I did it right openly in the temple and in the synagogues. And those people can speak instead. You ask me, I'll probably end up, if I'm incorrect, if I'm a sinful person, I'll tell you what you want to hear so that I can get out of your judgment. But instead, how about you ask them? They'll tell you the truth. I haven't been going around saying anything in secret. Watch what happens. Very good answer. Verse 22, when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of the hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Lick, lick, work, boy, nothing, son up, side. Pite him, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Because Jesus had just given an answer that they had no way to circumnavigate. You have no way to get away from that, and yet you smack Jesus in the face. You rubbish fellow. And the Lord Jesus had every right to do like God had done with Korah in the book of Numbers. And he had every right to open the earth out from underneath him. Let that fellow fall down into eternal damnation and judgment. And instead he did not. Like a lamb led before the slaughter, so opened he not his mouth. I say it again, every step of the way he chose this road. He was bounced from one trial to the next. From Annas to Caiaphas to the council, to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. And none of them found anything wrong. Pilate's trying his best to try to figure out how do I get away from condemning Jesus to death. Pilate's own wife comes to him and says, I've had a terrible dream in the night. You better not crucify this one. This one's not who you think he is. This one must be the Son of God. Pilate stands before the people. He drags out Barabbas and he says, how about this? I'll let Jesus go and I'll crucify Barabbas. I have to think Barabbas must have been one bad fella. He must have been terribly hated for Pilate to bring him before the people. And the people say, no, 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 let us have Barabbas. Set Barabbas free and crucify Jesus. Friend, I tell you this morning, it was not the Roman soldiers that killed the Lord Jesus. It was, not the Roman, it was not the Jewish people of the day that put him on the cross. It was not Pilate that did this. It was God himself who planned it from the foundation of the world. And it was the Lord Jesus who was 100% in agreement with this plan who went to the cross for he could have stopped it at any point along the way. Pilate turned and said, I, I think what we'll do is we'll scourge him. And maybe if the people see that he's been inflicted with pain... Then they will change their minds, and he sent him off for a scourging. The scourging, according to Jewish law, would only be 39 lashes. The Romans had no such law. The goal of the scourging within the Roman system was to bring a man all the way to the point of death without crossing all the way over into death so that he would die on the tree. And they would take that whip, tie Jesus to a post, shred his back. Skin, the meat, exposed bones. Pilate brought him back before the people. 
placed a purple robe upon him, platted a crown of thorns upon his head. Behold the man. The people said, crucify him. We saw it in our scripture reading this morning. I do want to draw your attention to John chapter 19 as we come to a close. Look at verse number 8. Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. Went again into the judgment hall and said to Jesus, Whence art thou? Where'd you come from? Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus, here's what, he's, here's what, here's what Pilate's doing. Jesus, just say something. Give me a reason to not crucify you. And in that statement, don't you understand that I have the power to crucify you? I hear an undertone that says, just get down on your knees and beg me for your life. And in that, I hear an echo of Matthew chapter 4. You remember what Satan said to Jesus? Just bow. I'll give you everything you ever wanted. And the Lord Jesus, with all the wisdom that is God in the flesh, responded. The next verse, number 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Pilate, don't worry about it. Go ahead, send me to the cross. It's not on you anyway. You don't have any power, Pilate. The power that you've got came from God. And in that moment, he chose this road. Pilate, you're a nobody. Just play your part. And our Lord Jesus Christ chose the cross. In all of this, as I look at it, all these steps along the road to the cross, I can't help but wonder one overarching question. Why? Why did he choose this road to the cross And the answer to that question has been a thread that's gone all throughout the crucifixion. It's been since the foundation of the world. Jesus used these words at the Last Supper as he sat with his disciples. These are the words that he said to them. John 15 and verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You realize he called us his friends before we ever knew him? But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He puts his love on display, he shows it to us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you can think of the most famous of all memory verses, John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, can I say it this way? He chose the road because of you. He chose the road because He loved you, and He wanted to see you be right with God. He took upon Himself the sin of the world. He took your sin, every evil thought that you've ever had, every evil deed that you've ever done, 
He chose it from the foundation of the world. He chose to take that upon himself so that you could be made the righteousness of God in him. And he says, there's only one way for you to make that right for you. You've got to put your trust in him. Did you hear it in John 3, verse 16? And whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I wonder this morning if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that in these next few moments we would see the Lord Jesus as most glorious. Yes, next week we will look upon the cross. We will see the resurrection you were raised for our justification. But this morning I want to take the time and look. Oh, Lord, you chose this road. That's grace. We don't deserve it. And so, Lord, I pray if there be some among us this morning who have never put their trust in the Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they do that. Could I ask you to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment? I'd like to give an invitation. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel. You say, Pastor, I'd like to put my trust in the Lord Jesus. Could I talk to somebody about that? If you're like that this morning, would you just raise your hand where you're at? Say, Pastor, I'd love to talk to somebody about putting my trust in the Lord Jesus. Anybody like that? Just raise your hand. I'd like to put my trust in the Lord Jesus. Anybody like that? And I wonder if there might be some of us this morning who would say, I don't deserve to be washed by Jesus, but I'm very thankful that he did wash me with his blood. And there's times when I look at him and I say, Lord, I need to be washed, all of me. You like that? You raise your hand with me. Oh, absolutely. I don't deserve it, but Lord, I'm thankful for your blood. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness upon us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus going to the cross, taking our sin. I thank you for your grace. May your name be glorified. We glorify the Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this week to love the fact that the Lord Jesus went to the cross for us. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.